Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from, some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy, so we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. that saw Jamie Lang leave Strictly, Ryland get two more jobs, and Phil and Holly return to you this morning, this is Series Linked with me, Emma Bullymore from the TV Times and Mark Jeffries from The Mirror. This is the podcast for TV fans by TV fans. Coming up, we're going to be chatting with top comedian Ramesh Ranganathan about the return of his sitcom, and Chris Marshall will be sharing his box set to watch before you die. But first, Jeffers, it's been a bit of a week for, shall we say, former X Factor contestants. It's all linked together. This isn't thrown together, this show. Let's start with Jessie from Little Mix. This is quite, well, it's a very sad story, actually. She's been all over the papers previewing this documentary, Odd One Out. Set it up a little bit for us. Yeah, basically, this is uh, BBC One, Thursday night, nine o'clock. It's her talking about her voyage through Little Mix from basically getting on X Factor. And from then forward, it's sort of the abuse, essentially, that she's got um, online, particularly on Twitter, Facebook, online trolls basically attacking her for how she looks, essentially. And it's her going into a lot of detail about how that made her feel. Um, She's speaking to other people who've also had trolls online and speaks to one set of parents whose daughter committed suicide over what she received online, sort of in terms of the abuse. So it's quite a a really serious topic. And I've got to say as well, in terms of Jessie, this is not a documentary that's going to, you know, get her a lot of money or... You know, it's not, I don't think it's about fame or anything. I think it's actually a really good thing that she's doing and it hopefully will sort of open up the conversation even more. She's very, very honest in it. She talks about herself being suicidal at one point. It's quite a difficult watch, but I think it's also quite an important programme. What, what did you think? Yeah, I think a lot of people will think because of the, the documentaries that have been out previously about people in her position that it will either be about the woes of being a reality star, i.e., you know, what it's like to be a star out of X Factor, or it might be, you know, about infighting within the band. And it's not about either of those. All the bands are talking on there and they're all very supportive of Jesse, but quite honest as well about the way in which, you know, her state of mind has affected the band. But it is searingly honest. You know, she goes into quite a lot of detail and she's obviously visibly moved and really upset just reliving these memories. And she's had such a hard time of it. The abuse is vitriolic and vile. It's not just, oh, she's a bit bigger than the others or she even that she's fat. It is so... It's just horrible. I, I, I mean, I can't think who would bother to write this stuff. You know, you, you're fat and therefore you must die. It's just, it's just horrible stuff. Uh, and for her to relive that, I mean, she's saying she's doing it 
because she's got lots of fans and they can, you know, see her and, and learn from this. She's got this platform that she wants to use. But I think it's really brave. Uh, and I, I think it is a really powerful documentary. I found some of the most revealing parts, perhaps not even when Jessie herself was speaking. You had her mum featuring quite heavily. And a couple of times she virtually breaks down and sort of asks the cameras to stop filming when she's recalling perhaps some of Jessie's worst moments. And she also admits that she'd almost, if she could click her fingers, have Jessie back before X Factor and back to sort of, as she sees a normal Jesse before any of this happened. Then you've got the bandmates and you can see some of them. Uh, I think Leanne at one point says Jesse at one point was like a broken doll. And they're quite honest as well about how the process, uh, the social media aspect makes sometimes difficult when they're working or filming videos because Jesse struggles to with things like making a new music video because she's worried about the reaction or how she looks compared to the other girls. So, yeah, I really feel like um, it is quite um, revealing in terms of the, the insight right into the whole band as well um, and how sort of Jesse's insecurities which have been caused by uh, this social media stuff how that affects the whole band and sort of how their outlook and stuff um, yeah it's really interesting I'm, I'm quite interested to see what the reaction will be like once this airs as well hope people will be very supportive in terms of social media at the moment you've also got in other aspects you know, there's a lot of racism that's happening I think maybe this is going to help to push for there to be some sort of changes or some sort of you know hard and fast rules because it just seems at the moment that anyone can say whatever they want and there's no real comeback if I had any criticism of this documentary, it might be that I personally might have not had the bit where she went to interview the family of, of the girl who died just because she was so out of her depth. You know, obviously you're watching this this show and you're on Jessie's side and you love her, but she found it so emotional and very difficult to interview those parents. And I just thought somehow that bit didn't work. For yeah, me. she's not a presenter ultimately, is she? So that's normally something that a documentary, a Stacey Dooley sort of character would go and do and they'd have the experience to maybe ask the right questions. And she finds that very difficult to do. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure whether there's you get that much out of it. You can obviously see the respect she's got for the parents. But I liked uh, more so things like she was with her boyfriend, Chris, and there were some lighter moments where he's not got the greatest vocabulary, probably the funniest, but he's trying to give her compliments and he says she's got eyes like golf balls. And I thought, <laughs> that's, that's, that's not what I'm going to be using on my next day. I don't think you've got eyes like golf was highly the most he flattering He meant it thing. as a real compliment. He, he, he was like, oh, but they're amazing. You've got these golf ball-like eyes. And she was like, uh, no. Uh, but yeah, a fantastic documentary. Even if you're not the big Little Mix fan or whatever, I think it's worth a watch. Go check it out. That's Thursday on BBC One, but obviously it'll be up on the iPlayer as well. Right, let's talk about Ryland now. And the great joy of him bringing Supermarket Sweep back, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that I got to make you watch it, Jeffers. Did you enjoy it? I did quite enjoy yeah. it. Yeah, it was quite fun. This is on ITV2. Um, Check it out. Da, 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 da. Weeknights, 8 o'clock. I think it would be better in a sort of tea time slot myself, but I'm sure it's going to do well wherever it is. Ryland is a natural replacement for... Dale Winton, he's, he's been tweeting this week about if he can be a millionth of, of a percent of what Dale was like, he'll have done well. But I think he's doing himself down there. He's really great. Um, you know, the show is naturally very cheesy, as I'm sure everyone will remember. And Ryland is a bit cheesy, so that, that all works. It's a little bit slow at the start for me. There's a lot of questions, a lot of that sort of bit where you have to introduce the contestants, which I always find on Family Fortunes and stuff a bit sort of tiresome. But once you get into it, once they're going around the aisles and stuff, that's all quite fun. And there's, they've got characters on the checkout. They've got security. They all smash stuff over. And yeah, it's an easy watch, isn't it? If anything, for me, it wasn't camp enough. Right. Really. I feel like in the old version, if you remember, they always had, had to use Dale's name every two minutes. Yes, Dale. A, a bag of chips, Dale. Lettuce, Dale. But he didn't do that. There was when one they interviewed team. him, he said he was going to do that and he didn't do it. There was one team trying to do that. I think the middle team in the, in the first episode I watched, they were saying riding a lot, but I agree. No, not everyone was on board with it. The jumpers weren't lurid enough, I would say. 
I would have had the logo on the front rather than just the back. Both sides make it really t- look really tacky. Kind of didn't need to be an hour if, as well. They've, yeah. they've kind of put some extra games in. But saying that, obviously have great, great love for this show. This is, for me, it's as exciting as when they brought Crystal Maze back. I'm hoping that there's going to be like a London live experience that we can go and do. You're in, Jeffers. No, I'd, I'd do the sweep. But yeah, that, that is the good bit of the show. As you say, I think if you cut 15 minutes off and you got into that end bit a bit quicker when they're running around with the trolleys, that's the bit everyone likes seeing, isn't it? The main one at the end where there's a £3,000 prize or a bit before that where all the teams are getting to do it. That's the bit everyone kind of wants to you watch. You want the chaos, don't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. And they kept saying, don't knock things off shelves. No, knock things off shelves. Get into the cameraman. That's the fun bit. I loved it. But good for Rylan. Loving Rylan's work at the moment. Ready, steady, cook. That's going to be great. He's going to bring that back as well. I'm a bit, I was a big fan of that, the old Red Tomatoes against Green Peppers, wasn't it, the two teams? Who was your favourite? I just remember Fern Britton being on there. I used to like it when Fern did it. What? She's, She's no one's favourite. She used to host so it. I used to like it. Ainsley or Ain- Leslie. Yeah, Ainsley, Ainsley was right. He's a bit over the top, wasn't he? But yeah, I know. I, I remember it quite fondly. That used to be on at 4.35 o'clock. So hopefully, unlike Sleeve Market Sweep, they'll keep it at a sort of tea time slot. That's where that, those sort of shows should be. So earlier in the week, we were lucky enough to catch up with comedian Ramesh Ranganathan. He joined us to talk all about the second series of his Sky One sitcom, The Reluctant Landlord. And so it's probably one of our funniest chats to date here on Series Linked. So here he is. This is Ramesh Ranganathan. So tell us about Series 2 of The Reluctant Landlord and what, what we can expect. And maybe set it up a little bit and people haven't managed to catch it so far. Sure. So Reluctant Landlord is a sitcom about a guy played by me called Ramesh. Ranganathan, lack of imagination there, whose dad basically used to run a pub and he passed away and so he's had to, he's inherited this pub and is sort of running it as a way of sort of keeping his fam, the family legacy going on and he's just not very good at it. He's reluctant and that's why, that's how we came to the title. He's a pub landlord, he's reluctant and we are very route one so we come up with the title Reluctant Landlord. <laughs> uh, and so it's just following him and his sort of endeavours to run that pub despite not being very good at it, despite kind of not wanting to do it. He wants to be a hip-hop producer. He's got this kind of dream going on. His wife thinks it's a good thing to run the pub. His mum thinks it's a good thing to run the pub. And it's just sort of like a... It's a pub-based sitcom, about it, but this guy's kind of struggling through it. Do you know what I mean? And series two... Basically, at the end of series one, he started his probation, probation period because there's a bit at the end of the series where they thought they were going to lose the pub, but they didn't in the end. Otherwise, it would be difficult to do a series two. Sure. And so we find them at the beginning of series two. That he's just completed his probationary period and he's sort of ready to start running the pub proper now. And it's vaguely based on real life. You, you did have a pub for a bit, right? Yeah. Well, my dad had a pub for like 15 years. And then everything like the starting point is true. So my dad suddenly passed away of a heart attack and we had this pub that we didn't want. But the difference is that I gave it up after a couple of months because it was just too hard. I was going to say, uh, what were you like as a landlord? In dreadful, dreadful. <laughs> my dad was like very like, he was a big personality and he sort of quite a social animal. And that pub was, it was like, it was like the pub is in the sitcom, which is just sort of a regulars pub. Do you know what I mean? It's not like one of these gastro aspirational pubs. It's just like a, a regulars pub with like a dog on a string and some racism. <laughs> and, sort of, and so my dad was like, very much drove that pub. People came to see, not to see him. He wasn't like a, a show, but you know, like he was just, it, it was just like, it was, it was a personality driven pub. And then I, my brother and I started doing it and we just, our hearts weren't in it really. So 
people were not as excited to come and see us as they had been to see my dad, do you know what I mean? Could you see the funny side at the time or is it only later that you kind of saw the comic potential in that No, situation? when it happened, I thought this could be a good sitcom. I mean, I, like, you know, I'd started running the pub straight after my dad had passed away. So obviously you're sort of dealing with that. But I remember sort of being behind the bar and I'd had a terrible day dealing with like the regulars and I thought to myself, this this is actually a good premise for a sitcom. But that was like seven years ago. So it took a while for that to happen, to become a sitcom. And is it harder or easier with a second series in terms of writing or in, in terms of filming everything? I, I think there's a lot that's easier. For example, you know, there's a lot about writing it that's easier because when we were writing the first series, you're sort of thinking, would this character do this? Or you're trying to, you're still putting the characters together. And, you know, you might go, well, would this character do it, do that? I don't know because I haven't fully fleshed this character out yet. Or I think I know what they do, but I don't really, you know, I'm not 100%. Whereas now, you go, you've got these characters that are set in place. You go, right, I'm going to make them do this. And I know exactly how they'd behave in these situations because we've got them now. They're locked in. So that's easier. What's more difficult is you just don't want to tread the same ground. You know, like when you're doing the first series, you don't think about doing a second series. You just think, let's put all of our best ideas into this. And then it's only when you sit down to write the second series, you go, oh, man, we used a lot of good ideas in the first series, didn't we? <laughs> uh, so you sort of don't want to just do more of the same. My instinct is to not do more of the same. So we wanted to sort of push it on a bit. Um, so, yeah, that there's a challenge in trying to keep it fresh and do it differently. But actually, like, the acting and all that's much easier. And everybody knows each other as well, so it's sort of all a lot more familiar. Is it stressful being responsible for so many people? Because obviously if you're doing stand-up or whatever, it's you and you're out there doing yeah. your thing. I don't really uh, experience stress, to be honest with you. But, um, I mean, I do feel a bit of... Um, I do feel a bit of pressure in terms of... I'll tell you what is annoying is, like... Because I've done acting on other jobs and you're reading other people's lines, and occasionally you hear an actor go, oh, I don't know about this line, it doesn't really work. Whereas now, if that happens, that's my fault. Do you know what I mean? So, so if, if, an, if an actor goes, this doesn't make, I don't know why, this isn't a funny line, it feels like they're punching me in the face. <laughs> uh, so there is that, I'm constantly apologising if a line doesn't, because sometimes, the truth of it is, we, you know, it's not just me that writes it, but we draft and draft and draft, and you get it to a point that you think it's not perfect, nothing's perfect. But you go, this is as polished as I can get it. And it's only when you set it up and you have the people in position that you go, actually, this doesn't, a couple of these lines don't work. Or a person wouldn't actually, when you actually physically do it, you go, a person wouldn't do that. They wouldn't let this person talk for as long as they have done without interrupting or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So sometimes it's only when you're in the situation that you realise, but I just feel constantly, whenever we start to film something, particularly when it's an episode that I've, I've written from top to bottom, I start to get a bit panicked that somebody's going to go, this scene doesn't make any sense or whatever. And I think, oh, God. <laughs> so I just, I just have this constant fear of having to do a rewrite on the, in the pub. Do you know what I mean? Like just sat there while they're all waiting for me to get these lines finished. Um, and for those people who haven't seen it, you've got Nick Hellman there, who's a great stand-up, seen mm. a lot of times, and Sean Gibson, who people know from Car Show as well. Yeah. Are, are they difficult? Do they often say this about any of your scenes, <laughs> lines? Uh, Nick likes to wind me up a lot. Like he'll just go fine if that's what you think that line should be like you know he, he constantly likes to undermine my confidence but it's only because we're really good mates but the good thing about everyone is we've got to a point where like for example to be honest with you like we've had Sean and, and Yasmin who plays Julie like help us with like storylines going into series two but the truth is I'm not very good I'm not very good at writing what I think what a woman would do in a situation you know female characters I'd say like you know you're never I don't think you're ever going to be as good as 
a female at writing those characters. So a lot of the time, you know, I'll base it on stuff that's happened in my marriage. A lot of the stuff that happens with Ramesh and Tasha in the sitcom is based on stuff that's happened in our lives. But um, sometimes I say to Sean, well, would you do that? If your husband did that, would you behave like that? And she goes, no, I wouldn't. And so we sort of, we're sort of open to that, do you know what I mean? So they're all very polite. And if I'd have made it out that I don't want to hear any feedback or I don't want them to change anything, then I'm sure they would have done that. But we've got kind of an open situation where if somebody doesn't feel right about a certain line or the way that a character responds, we're sort of happy to discuss it on the, on the actual set and like rework it if it needs to. And what does your wife make of the fact that you use bits of your marriage? And I've heard you talk about her in stand-up and stuff before. She rarely watches anything I do, so I guess it doesn't impact on her life <laughs> at all, really. And she doesn't really mind, is the honest answer. Uh, like she, she cares to such a low level that I sometimes wonder if she's still invested in the relationship. <laughs> like, like, like I, I don't think... I could barely get a reaction out of the woman, to be honest with you. Uh, no, she just doesn't. She just doesn't. She's just one of the most laid-back people I've ever met I mean she just doesn't care like I'm writing a new tour show at the moment and I talk about us in quite intimate detail during that show and there's a couple that we're going for dinner with who wanted to come to the show it was work in progress I was like sort of doing it from notes and stuff so they said can we come and watch the show and then we'll go out for dinner after so Lisa my wife went came with them to sit in the in the audience and I did the show and then went for dinner with them afterwards but just before Lisa came in to say good luck and I said to her, I almost forgot there's this bit where I talk about us, like some stuff that happened with us like a few weeks ago, like really like in depth in the show. She goes, all right, cool, fine. She didn't, she didn't care, but I just thought it'd be good to give her a heads up. Anyway, I did the show and we got to that bit. She was like totally unfazed. She was just sitting there watching it. But the couple that we were going to have dinner with, they just looked absolutely mortified. <laughs> they just, because I guess they're just sort of sitting next to the woman that's been spoken about in the thing. Uh, but she really doesn't care. And I've heard lots of other comics uh, say that you're the busiest comedian on TV. There's lots of jokes made about that type of thing. On Wikipedia, I counted six series in 2018. I think you were up to two or three this year. How, how do you manage to keep it? How do you juggle it all? I'm just a bit of a workaholic, really, I guess. That sort of happens by accident. I don't sort of start off thinking I want to do as many shows as I possibly can. It's just like things come up and you go, yeah, I'd do that, or that could be good, or you get an idea to do something. As I said, I don't really like ever really get stressed out particularly, so I guess that helps. I mean, I never doesn't really feel like I'm juggling it. It just sort of feels like I'm doing stuff. I mean, contrary to popular belief, I do turn down stuff. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> there, there, are, there are shows that I've been offered that I, ha- I have said no to. My, I would say part of it is like a, a bit, I guess there is a bit of imposter syndrome in that. Do you know what I mean that this is a very fickle industry, and you know this time next year I might not be doing it, you know, I could not be doing any shows because we know the nature of this kind of business. I mean, in, you can be flavour of the month one minute and, and struggle in the next. So I'm fully aware of that and, and, and maybe that plays some sort of psychological part in it that I think I'm trying to make hey, while the sun shines. Do you know what I mean? I guess it's a damning indictment on my marriage. My, my wife is... <laughs> My wife is so indifferent to anything I do. I'm just desperately trying to impress her with something. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but also, the, I mean, the sad thing now is I've said so much about education in stand-up and stuff, I probably couldn't return to it if this went wrong. <laughs> so that's, that's sort of a bad thing. I mean, if this did go south, I would have to retrain, I guess, because I don't think any school is <laughs> going to take me as a teacher. So, yeah. You've actually pan- I've actually managed to talk myself. <laughs> I'm actually, I, I, I said... I don't experience stress. You've actually managed to ask a question that's made me talk myself into a panic now. So thanks for that. Another quite serious question. I was going to say you've spoken and written a lot about um, race and racism a lot. Yeah. And I wonder whether you think um, TV is better representing Britain, say, in 2019 compared to maybe a few years ago. Oh, yeah, 100%. I think, like, uh, you know, I don't like it. 
because you know I've got a USP to protect, <laughs> and so you know you get. I see these other Asian comedians coming up, and I think, what does that mean for me in the long term? Do you know what I mean? What are people like when they meet you on the street? Because I think people feel like comedians, like their mates, because they've seen them being bantery on panel yeah. shows and stuff. Do they give you stick or? I have a problem. I don't know if this is true of all comedians, but my problem is is that because I'm sometimes like a bit abrasive on stage and like on shows and stuff. People just come up to me and insult me. Like they think that's the way of like, <laughs> like interacting with me. So like I'll um I'll like put something up on Instagram and then somebody will post going, "Oh, you look at you, lazy eyed, and you're ugly, aren't you?" Or whatever. Like, but they're not they're not being horrible. They think that we're engaging in some sort of roast battle or something. <laughs> so like, just that's what happens. Like people come up to me and sort of say something horrible. I, I was at um, a theme park and like, I've sort of talked about on stage in the past about my second son being like a little bit difficult. And I'm with my kids, right? This guy comes up to me and he goes, he just points at him and he goes, this is the moron one. I was oh like, no. mate, oh are you mad? Like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, first of all, I never said he was a moron. <laughs> Second of all, why would you just point in his face? It's crazy. Oh anyway, what do think that you're luckily he's too thick to understand what's going on. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking, I'm joking. And we always ask our guests... If you get a chance to watch telly, what kind of telly do you like watching? I watch a lot of stand-up. So I watch loads of stand-up. But the the main thing I watch is like bingeable stuff. So my wife and I, our quality time consists of sitting in silence and watching box sets. I just recently watched on Sky Atlantic that series Save Me. Did you see it? Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. I thought that was unbelievable. Um, and I'm I really... the second one at the moment, actually. Yes, started, yeah. yeah, yeah, I've heard. And, and I really love Stephen Graham, so I watch anything that he's in. I start watching The Virtues. Did you watch that? And then I'm very excited about the new season of Stranger Things. Stranger Things series one and two, I managed to get something that me, my wife and my mum enjoy. Why the hell you'd want that trio together regularly, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why that's the dream scenario. But it's just unusual that all of us like the same thing. The viewing habits I have is there's certain programmes I watch on my own that I'm allowed to watch on my own and there's certain stuff that my wife and I have to watch together. Love Island, for example, we watch together. But um, it tends to be box set dramas and stuff. We just stopped watch- started watching Game of Thrones, weirdly. I'm on series two. <laughs> <laughs> Have you avoided all the spoilers? No. Well, none. Of the, I, I'm so far behind that none of the spoilers mean anything to Great. me. Do you know I, mean? I, don't, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, they go, oh, I shouldn't tell you that Bubba Ding Ding's done this. I don't, <laughs> even, I don't even know who that is, mate. That means nothing to me. You can tell me what you want. Brilliant. Well, good luck with avoiding spoilers as you carry on. Thank Thank you you so much for coming in. Cheers. And you can catch the second series of The Reluctant Landlord on Sky One Wednesdays at 10 o'clock. And it's all on Now TV as well. So a couple of other new comedies starting this week for us to discuss. Let's start with one that I think has kind of gone under the radar, but it's actually very good. This is BBC Two's State of the Union. Tell us a little bit about this, Jeffers. I loved this. I've got to say from the off, I'm, I'm well on board with this. He's in. It's a 10-minute per episode thing. It's just basically shot in a pub. It's two people, uh, Rosamund Pike and Chris O'Dowd. They're playing Louise and Tom. They are a married couple. They're supposed to be going for marriage counselling. They've obviously had some issues. The more episodes you watch, the more you find out about what's gone wrong and the more you learn about their personalities. But it's sort of like you're just watching one scene from a play in the 10 minutes. And they're both great actors. It's very dialogue-heavy, but the dialogue is really good quality. And I, I find it really funny... 
I was watching one to watch for, so we could review it here. And I ended up watching four or five straight off the bat. I just think it's really good. It's really good writing, really good actors. I can't pick a fault in it, really. Yeah, because we see a lot of couples counselling on TV, but I think the decision to have the 10 minutes before they go into the counselling session was much smarter and much funnier. Uh, and that you do believe them as a couple. Rosamund Pike, I felt, I don't know, I felt like she was doing theatre acting a couple of times. She was a bit sort of staged and it, posh It feels moments. like a theatre. I almost felt like I was watching a play. I guess I don't know if that's a deliberate setup, but yeah, I know what you mean. But I did believe their relationship, and I believed the way they spoke to each other and the kind of in jokes they had. It's actually really difficult to make a couple realistic on TV, I think, and I think they did that really well. And it's really nice to see BBC Two or normal channel kind of taking inspiration from the way in which we watch telly now and just a 10-minute bite-sized chunk. I mean, obviously, it's not the only 10-minute thing that's ever been on, on the BBC, but I think it's a really clever thing to do that. And like you say, it's so watchable. It's so bingeable. I was really surprised, actually, to see this on the BBC for that very reason, for it being 10 minutes. You'd think that they would dismiss this out of hand, but what I'm really hoping is we'll get a bit ahead of steam. At least it's on Sunday nights, and there'll be hopefully five or ten dropped on, on the iPlayer and then people will sort of get into it like I did and, and watch a load of them and I think word of mouth will spread and people will be watching this in chunks on, on iPlayer. I really think it's great. So from one end of the spectrum to another, a sort of bit more mainstream comedy has kicked off on BBC One. This is Scarborough. Tell us a bit about this, Jeffers. Well, I didn't like this as much, I'm going to be honest. I, I like some of the people in it. The main two characters are played by Jason Manford and Catherine Tilsley and it's sort of a bit like Benidorm set in Scarborough, I suppose. It's the same writer as Benidorm, Darren Lytton, and, and he's basically recreated Benidorm in Scarborough. That's, that would be my pitch for it. You've got Mike and Karen, who are played by Jason and Catherine, and they're having a second go at a relationship. Um, and you've got other characters from sort of hairdressers, ice cream parlours, so very similar in that sense to Benidorm. And they're all sort of over-the-top characters. But my main issue with this is it's just the... The style of it is quite old-fashioned, so it doesn't really appeal very much to me. I, I read one review where they were comparing it as a cross between Phoenix Knights and Benidorm. I think that's setting the bar very high in terms of what has actually been achieved there. Catherine's a good actress. I, I, I know Jason quite well, but I think the ammunition they've got, the script they've got to play with here is, is not really up to it personally. I, I didn't like it. There is a gap in the market for something like this on TV. Um, not necessarily something I'm going to enjoy, even if it's done well. But in this case, I just felt it was flat. There was... A lot of jokes that I didn't find funny. There's a Jimmy Savile joke. I just didn't really like it. What, what did you think? I quite like Claire Sweeney as the kind of super bitch type character that yes. comes at the end. She's good. Yeah, my mum and dad really liked this. And so they were, they were talking to me about it. And I sat down to watch it. I was just waiting. I found it quite depressing, if I'm honest, in a way that... So it's, And it's not just because it's it's kind of real life like if you take something like the royal family that sort of should be depressing but it's hilarious and joyous and you know is a kind of love letter to working class family yes whereas i don't think this is it felt very claustrophobic and small and she was stuck with this guy he wasn't really good enough for her but she was going to forgive him because she's got nothing better on the horizon i don't know i just it made me want to cry not laugh i felt sorry for her um and I, yeah the laughs just weren't really coming i thought it was quite predictable um, and actually, Benidorm, although towards the end of Benidorm, I didn't like it, the start of it was good for what it was trying to do. I thought, you know, it, it really hit its mark. But Benidorm was loud and proud, wasn't it? And it, it did what it did well. I, I wasn't a huge fan, but I could appreciate that what it was doing, it was doing well. I just feel with this, there's a lot of lazy jokes and, and the characters are maybe a bit stereotyped or, or some of the things that are happening even are a bit stereotyped. And I just thought it, it missed the target. I think it's a real Marmite one, judging from the reaction so far on social media and even TV critics. I've read some people saying it's got real potential and other people saying it's the worst thing they've seen for years so there will be some people out there maybe you'll give it a go and maybe if you like Benidorm and Darren's writing it's worth watching at least an episode but for me it, it, it fell short. 
Now it's time once again to add to the list of box sets to watch before you die. Each week, one of our favourite faces from the telly tells us a must-see series. Last week, Emily Atak chose Breaking Bad. Pretty strong choice, I think. And this week, it's the turn of Sanderton and former Death in Paradise star Chris Marshall. Let's have a listen to his choice. Hi, I'm Chris Marshall, and my documentary to watch before you die is Free Solo. Does it feel different to be up there without a rope? It's obviously, like, much higher consequence. People who know a little bit about climbing, they're like, oh, he's totally safe. And then people who really know exactly what he's doing are freaked out. It's the story of Alex Honnold and his attempt to free climb without any ropes, El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. El Cap is the most impressive wall on Earth. It's 3,200 feet of sheer granite. It's the center of the rock climbing universe. Obviously, I get interview questions about it all the time. Oh, would you like to do that? you're like, yes, for sure. And I love it because it's amazingly well filmed with a brilliant protagonist. No mistakes tomorrow. It's starting to get kind of psyched. If you're pushing the edge, eventually you find the edge. I can't believe you guys are actually going to watch. Hey, Jimmy, do you copy? Just started climbing. Free Solo. Everyone was talking about Free Solo for a while. It really made its mark. Did you watch this first time around? I haven't seen it, I must admit, but I'm going to watch it. I've looked it up. It's still on all four and it's also on Amazon Prime Video, so pretty easy to watch. I mean, it's all about this rock climber, Alex Hunold, and his quest to perform a free solo climb of El Capitan in June 2017. It was first of all out in the cinemas as well, and it did really well. It took $21 million in the States and also won a Best Documentary Feature Award at the Academy Awards. So, I mean, it... It's, uh, it's high praise from, from lots of places and it, it does sound like it's worth watching. Yeah, I mean, even if you just think, oh, I'm not really into climbing, it is, it's just spectacular and watching his journey is incredible. So I think that's a good choice. Thanks, Chris. And you can catch Chris in Sanderton, which continues on ITV on Sunday nights. There'll be another box set to watch before you die next week. That's almost it for this episode of Series Linked. But I can't let you go without the best bit. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten, Jeffers. This is your moment. You need to tell us what we should be keeping an eye on, not just next week, but also next month and next year. So let's go then, Jeffers. What about next week? Next week, a bit of a curveball. This Inside the Vatican is a BBC Two documentary. Okay. I think a certain type of people are going to really like this. Unprecedented access to the inner work and to the most important place in the Christian world. You've got the Pope involved, or, you know, the, <laughs> You've all, got the, the Pope involved. all the usual sort of people from this type of thing. And it's filmed during his fifth year in office. Um, in office? I don't think it's, you're in office as the Pope. That's how the BBC describe it. And it also charts the time of change as he introduces a lot of form and shakes up a lot of the establishment. So I think it's an interesting time for them to be going and looking at the Vatican. So I think some people are going to like that. That's Friday, September 20th on BBC Two. Does it feature his appearance in the BBC classic Pilgrimage? It's not mentioned, but we can, we can but hope. Oh, amazing. What about next month? Next month, this is a bit of a marmite one. I know the producer's not very keen on this. This is a thing called The British Tribe Next Door. <laughs> it's described as a groundbreaking new series and Scarlett Moffat and the rest of her family are going to spend four weeks with a Namibian tribal village, basically in Namibia, and they take their whole house from County Durham over, water, electric, all their possessions, and they set up in this tribe and uh, they kind of swap exchange information. So, you know, they're going to introduce the tribe to things like mirrors, hair dryers, iPhones, 
It's, do it, they want to be introduced to this? They've got obviously they've got permission to do this. I think it's quite a controversial decision to to do this, and I'm not sure how it's going to play out. It's a four part series. Um, Channel Four unveiled it up at the Edinburgh TV Festival, but I think it's quite a controversial thing to do. I'm not sure what benefits the tribe are going to get from this. I think it's going to be quite interesting to watch, but I think it's yeah. It's going to be one that's going to divide people watching it, to be mm, honest. Interesting. And what about next year? Next year, we've got a new series of Last Tango in Halifax. Hey. They're, they're back filming and um, they've confirmed it's going to re- return in 2020. All the usual people are back in it. Derek Jacobi, Anne Reid, uh, Nic- Nicola Walker and Sarah Lancashire. Fantastic. Thanks, Jeffers. And that's all we've got time for this week. This has been the Series Linked podcast. If you've enjoyed it, go on, do us a favour, leave us a five-star rating and a review and we will love you forever. And make sure you've subscribed as well so you can catch the next episode when it drops on Tuesday morning. For now, though, bye-bye. See you later. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to. Because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from. Some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy, so we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.